It's October 27th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Right Report, your daily news podcast. I've got four briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, we will discuss the horrific shooting in Maine, folks. It is bringing a lot of things into focus for many of us this morning. Certainly the importance of family, the fragility of life, amongst others. But one thing that I've been focusing on over the past 24 hours is the role of mental health in these deadly events. And that's because the killer in Maine suffered with severe psychosis. So I've collected some facts and data for us to talk about this morning, and I will share those details with you shortly. Meanwhile, as our hearts are very, very heavy, I do have a few other things for us to talk about as news continues to develop all around the country. To include this, Joe Biden, his popularity is tanking amongst his fellow Americans and most especially his fellow Democrats. We'll talk about the two likely causes of that collapse in just a bit. Third, the mayor of New York City is once again exploring putting up tents throughout his public spaces in his city to deal with the migrant crisis to include putting up tents in Central Park. I'll bring you the latest on that. Fourth, the U.S. Commerce Department released yesterday what seems like very good economic news. The GDP was up 4.9% last quarter. But behind the rosy headlines was something troubling, all about incomes. I'll give you those numbers in about 15 minutes. But before we get to all of that, let's get to our top story of the morning. The nation is in a time of great sorrow, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? At least 18 people were killed and 13 injured in Lewiston, Maine, after a man opened fire on what seems to be random victims at a bowling alley and at a restaurant. As law enforcement works to bring that man to justice, the natural question I think most of us are wrestling with is why? Why did he do it? And in this case, it appears that the man named Robert Card was mentally ill. His brother Ryan Card confirmed that Robert started hearing voices in his head over the summer, and then he was hospitalized in a psychiatric unit for two weeks after concerns were raised by his commanders in the Army Reserves. He served as a petroleum supply specialist for the Army. His family is now cooperating with law enforcement officers, and apparently they have been in phone or text communication with the suspect. Very few details have been released on that, as you would imagine. Well, in the coming days and weeks, we will, of course, learn more about this man and this case. But knowing that he suffered with mental illness, it gives us a chance, I think, to talk about how we handle mental health crises in this country and the extent to which that that played a role here. More importantly, I think it gives us a chance to start thinking about solutions to how we deal with mentally ill people before, in this case, they actually kill people. And to do that, let's start this conversation with something that we might not know. One year ago, researchers at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine looked at 35 cases of mass killers who used guns in their crimes and then survived to be questioned and studied afterwards. So the cases that they looked at stretched all the way from 1982 to the year 2019. Well, after these researchers reviewed all the court documents and hospital records and case files, The researchers found that the overwhelming majority of these killers, 87%, were mentally ill. And those illnesses were often misdiagnosed and wrongly treated or utterly undiagnosed and untreated. So the question, of course, is how to identify and treat those people or perhaps 
remove them from society and place them in, well, long-term care. But that is an issue of great debate and has been for decades. And here's part of that debate going back to the early days of the country. So prior to the 1950s, the U.S. placed most of our mentally ill people in asylums or hospitals for involuntary long-term care. But through the 1930s and 40s, there were growing concerns that that was inhumane or there were cases where that kind of care was very abusive to patients. And then as that was happening, that debate, along came some drug companies who started producing antipsychotics. That happened in the 1950s. And that led to a greater emphasis on treating patients at home with their families if they had them. So this was and is called community care. And that is why, from the 1950s to today, the number of beds at psychiatric hospitals has declined by 90%. Plus, we should know that in the year 1999, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Olmstead versus LC that most mentally ill people ought to be treated at home or in community settings rather than being institutionalized. Well, whatever one thinks of that long-running debate over asylums and hospitals versus community care, One of the consequences of this greater use of community care is that, sadly, more mentally ill people have ended up on the streets or in prisons. So let's talk about the prisons first. Studies show that generally the mentally ill make up approximately 20% of our prison populations, give or take, based on the year and the location. And that percentage is up substantially for the 1950s and 70s, all when those mental asylums or hospitals started shutting down. In other words, prisons have become a a sad substitute for the hospitals and asylums, at least in some cases, and then only after these folks have committed a pretty heinous set of crimes. Meanwhile, there's the issue of homeless people. Latest data from the federal government show that there are about 600,000 homeless people in this country, and of those, 120,000 suffer from mental illness. That is about 20% of the total. But given the various laws and that Supreme Court decision, it's pretty tough to get homeless, even mentally ill people off the streets and into long care uh, facilities. That, of course, is if these facilities even exist anymore. So those are the initial complicating facts and data this morning as we wrestle with this shooting in Maine. In other words, and in short, there are fewer hospitals and more legal restrictions in how we care for the mentally ill which in turn is pushing greater numbers of these folks into prisons or onto the streets. But even those who manage to stay at home or get that community care, well, what we're hearing is that friends and families really struggle to ensure that these folks get and, well, sustain with their good mental health care. It is very hard, it appears, to get someone committed to a hospital or long-term facility to ensure that they don't slip through the cracks and do something awful. And based on early reports out of Maine, that appears to be true of this very horrific case. So with those facts and data, let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion with just three quick things. First, ladies and gentlemen, this issue is very complicated, full of lots of varying opinions and views. And that's partly because institutionalizing someone means taking away their freedom, their liberty. And that should give us pause especially given the history in this country of some of those institutions not taking care of patients very well at all. So this morning, we'll avoid a deep dive into that issue, specifically around the freedom and liberty, and instead just start a conversation for future episodes. 
Second, the data that I have shared with you, understanding the caveat of more to come, well, these data tell me something I think important. Mental illness is a profound factor in understanding the vast majority of uh, mass killings in this country, like we have just seen in Maine. But it appears that we are failing in the way that we handle these people, folks who are dealing with mental health crises. And that includes failures in our current laws, as well as this move away from hospitals and asylums to community care. In other words, what the data show is that these folks are not being cared for at all or not sufficiently. Third, what I'd like to remind us of is this. Most of America's mass killings, especially shootings and especially shootings at schools, the criminals are almost always men. About 98% of the cases and most of the men are young men. So as we start to think about this horrific case in Maine, I'd encourage us to step back and think about the big picture to this very, very difficult problem. Because many folks will say, as I am hearing once again this morning, that the solution is to ban guns or certain types of guns. And yet, whatever you feel about that, what's clear from the data that I've given you this morning is that unless we talk about mental health and the state of men in this country, we're not going to address why people like Robert Cord and Lewiston, Maine, ended up killing so many people. In other words, we're not going to be able to stop the next Robert Cord because mentally ill people, and especially mentally ill men like him, well, they're just going to find a different weapon or tool to kill people. And that's important to think about. At any rate, more for us to consider and reflect on over the weekend and for many weeks to come, because ladies and gentlemen, this is just a start to a very important and difficult conversation. With that, let's take our first break of the morning. Maybe let our minds rest for a minute after we've had that very heavy piece of news. We'll be right back. Folks, you know what's a real treat for me? It's telling you all about a product or service that I love and endorse without a single reservation. And I've got that kind of company to tell you about today. It's called Montana Knife Company. They make working knives for working people. And I'm just going to tell you, if you are a farmer or rancher, a fisherman, a hunter, camper, or maybe you just love having a knife on you for whatever life throws your way, well, throw away whatever other knife you might have because a Montana knife is the only knife to own. And here's why. This is a small Montana-based company headed up by a master bladesmith named Josh Smith. This guy has been making knives for over 30 years, and you can tell they are designed, tested, and built by working men and women, especially by hunters. In fact, Montana Knife Company, or MKC, is a hunting knife company first and foremost. But no matter that, go to their website, right, MontanaKnifeCompany.com, and you will see what I mean. They are absolutely tough, absolutely versatile, and my goodness, are they pretty to look at. Truly an heirloom purchase if there ever were one. And by the way, everybody knows this is true because most of these knives sell out within either minutes to hours of being released. But for the first time ever, Montana Knife Company has knives in stock right now. So go get yourself one, like a Blackfoot 2.0 or a Speedboat or one of my favorites, a Stonewall Skinner. And if you do, you are going to get 10% off, ladies and gentlemen. You just got to make sure that you use a promo code and it is WR10. Yes, that is WR10 at MontanaKnifeCompany.com. Again, you're going to get 10% off your first order when you use it. So buy yourselves an heirloom knife, folks, a working knife for working people at MontanaKnifeCompany.com.
Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue, shall we, with our briefs this morning with more domestic news. First, Joe Biden's approval numbers are at a record low, dropping 11 points in just one month. That is most especially amongst Democrats. At least that's based on a poll out yesterday from the folks at Gallup polling, which shows that Mr. Biden's overall approval number sits at 37 percent nationally. And that's a record low for him. Now, driving that number, though, is this. Only 75 percent of Democrats approve of Mr. Biden's performance. And that is a drop of 11 points in just the past three weeks. For what it's worth, only 35% of independents give Mr. Biden positive marks, and only 5% of Republicans do the same. But what's getting the most attention this morning is that 11-point drop amongst Democrats. And here's the part that's especially raising some eyebrows. The poll was taken largely after Hamas attacked Israeli citizens on October 7th and killed over 1,400 people. Now, as listeners know, that has drawn outrage from the vast majority of Americans, but not all of us. As Gallup reported, Democrats tend to be more sympathetic to the Palestinian cause over Israel. Plus, we spoke earlier this week of a different poll that showed that a strong majority of Muslim Americans, about 60 percent of them, believe that Hamas was justified in their terror attacks. And most of those voters have backed Joe Biden and the Democratic Party based on exit polling from recent elections. In other words, the dramatic drop in support of Mr. Biden in this latest Gallup poll, most especially by Democrats, that is tied to those folks in his party who support Hamas, the Palestinian cause, and are otherwise just very angry by Mr. Biden expressing his general support for Israel. In fact, that analysis, it's not mine. It came from Gallup polling. They offered it with the poll's release yesterday. And that analysis, by the way, represents a very serious political problem for Mr. Biden and his party. Of course, he is running for re-election next year. And it all comes down to winning states like Michigan and Pennsylvania. So let me just give you one example. So let's talk about Michigan. When Donald Trump won the presidency back in 2016, he won Michigan by 11,000 votes. Four years later in 2020, at least according to state officials, he lost Michigan by about 150,000 votes. But in that mix of voters are about 240,000 people who identify as Muslim, especially in cities like Dearborn, Michigan, which we spoke of back on October 17th. In other words, Mr. Biden likely cannot get reelected unless he has these Arab and Muslim voters in places like Michigan. And for what it's worth, he knows that he has upset these folks and he's trying to fix it. Indeed, as NBC is reporting this morning, the White House has launched a new effort to shore up the votes of these individuals. Mr. Biden's rhetoric is now starting to shift a bit towards a greater emphasis on words of comfort for Muslim Americans and the Palestinian cause. You may have seen that in the press recently. But doing that in turn is causing outrage by another set of Mr. Biden's supporters, especially Jewish Democrats. That has, in fact, been reported by The New York Times and others saying that they feel abandoned and frightened by Mr. Biden and his pivot towards this Palestinian cause, or at least that is how they view it. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Biden has quite a challenge on his hands. Two very different wings of his party that want two very different things. And that helps partly explain why his poll numbers just dropped 11 points in the past three weeks amongst his party faithful. But I should say that is only one reason that his fellow Democrats are leaving him. The issue of immigration, that is driving the drop in support as well. 
To understand that, consider the very staunchly Democrat state of New York. A poll out on Tuesday from Siena College showed that 64% of New Yorkers disapprove of how Mr. Biden is handling the immigration crisis. That is leaving 52% of Democrats in that very blue state to say that they want a different presidential nominee for the party. So those are the latest facts and data this morning about Mr. Biden's record low approval numbers and that 11 point drop amongst his fellow Democrats. So for now, I'm going to hold off on additional analysis and opinion because I want to see a bit more polling data before I come to my firm conclusions on all this. But my preliminary takeaway is that Democrats have tried turning their movement into a big tent party. Indeed, a lot of Democrat leaders like Nancy Pelosi have celebrated the Democrats are a big tent. But that big tent has let in some people that want very different things, including some voters that apparently think Hamas are the good guys. So let's see how that plays out, because we've got a long ways to go until the next election, about one year from now, when we will all decide what kind of tent this country should be and who gets to be a part of it. And speaking of tents, we turn to our third report of the morning. The mayor of New York City is saying that it is time to start passing out tents to illegal migrants. And then he wants to gather those people into new tent cities. Well, those would be in public spaces, including places like Central Park. Based on reporting from the Wall Street Journal, Mayor Eric Adams of New York City and his advisors believe that the time is now to start handing out tents to newly arrived illegal migrants. And that is because the city has already placed 65,000 migrants in hotels and other emergency locations throughout the five boroughs. And there is simply no more room left. Mr. Adams said that again on Tuesday. So the city is considering a new solution. They're calling it campsites. Migrants would apparently be given or assigned a tent when they arrive, and it would probably be in a broader collection of tents in various public spaces like parks. And once there, they would set their tent down and uh, find some great options for them to live, like portable toilets and water systems and central cooking facilities. It is also possible that the campsites would just be tents on sidewalks, but that seems to be of less interest this morning, according to the city. Instead, these new tent cities or campsites makes a bit more sense, again, including placing them in Manhattan's Central Park. By the way, this is an idea that first got traction back in May, but city officials prioritized less, well, public options, like old airport hangars and disused public buildings. But when migrants kept coming, city officials talked about using Central Park and other parks again in August, but they did manage to find some other more discreet options. Unfortunately, though, the migrants keep coming. So Mr. Adams and his fellow Democrats in New York are looking at tents once again to include putting them in Central Park. As Mr. Adams said on Tuesday, quote, it's not if people will be sleeping on the streets, it's when. That's because we are at full capacity, end quote. He then spoke of the tent option, saying that, quote, we have to make sure that people have some type of restroom facility, some type of shower network, end quote. In other words, campsites. So those are the latest facts and data coming to us out of New York City this morning, or should we say Tent City, New York. Let me pivot now and offer you just two opinions briefly. First, if you have never been to New York, in all seriousness, you might want to go before these tents go up. Central Park will not be the same, nor will the city. 
Second, this news just underlines why Mr. Biden is so increasingly unpopular in otherwise very Democrat or leftist states and cities. And that includes New York, as I shared earlier. In fact, let me add this piece that I didn't share with you. Biden's lead over the likely Republican nominee, uh, Donald Trump, of course, that lead is down to seven points. And that's pretty remarkable if you consider that in the 2020 election, he beat Trump by 23 points in that empire state. So this issue of immigration, ladies and gentlemen, could be very potent in one year's time, but we shall see. One final piece of news for us this morning, some economic news that most analysts said was very good, but buried in the details was the reason for why so many folks in this country think that the U.S. economy is heading in the wrong direction. So let's talk about what most analysts said was just great news. The U.S. Commerce Department announced yesterday that the U.S. economy grew at a rate of 4.9% annualized rate last quarter. Much of that growth, by the way, was due to a bump in consumer spending. Of course, a drop in more money on all sorts of things from standard stuff like rent and food to other things like hotels and even RVs. Well, all told, economists were very happy with this number of 4.9 annualized, far higher than predicted. And I tell you, that led to a series of glowing headlines yesterday from politicians and media outlets alike. Joe Biden, for instance, released a press statement claiming credit for all of the progress, saying, quote, it is a testament to the resilience of American consumers and American workers supported by Bidenomics, end quote. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal called this development a boom, an economic boom. Plus, they said the issue of inflation that has just beguiled this country for so long, that was not as bad last quarter. Inflation is now down to 2.4%, down from nearly 4% from the previous quarter. Well, so long as you exclude food and gas. Well, there you are. But as all those celebrations kicked off yesterday in various newsrooms in the Biden White House, buried in the data was this little tidbit that was highlighted by Reuters News. Household incomes were actually down last quarter by 1% after taxes. In other words, to pay for all the boom in economic spending, U.S. consumers had to either dip into their savings or use credit cards. So to the former, the savings rate for this country last quarter decreased from 5.2% to 3.8%. When we look at credit cards, well, we now have confirmation that Americans are carrying about $1 trillion in debt. That's a record. There are also record interest rates on that debt, as you would imagine, record interest payments, and of course, record fees on all of it. For what it's worth, economists are not expressing much concern about that. They're pointing to low unemployment rates as the reason for their optimism, with the argument being that so long as we can all get jobs, we can keep spending, whether that be through savings or credit card debt. So those are the facts and data this morning, brought to you, of course, because it's so important to know where our economy is heading, but also because of listeners like Katie in Wyoming. I shared her reflection last week that while economists keep talking about how good things are economically, to folks like Katie, it sure doesn't feel like it with prices so daggone high. So the point is, again, Katie, to you and others who are suffering and struggling this morning, you're not crazy. Your take-home pay just has not kept up with inflation for years now, even though there have been over the past couple of months some, some bumps in your salaries and your hourly wages. But as Reuters is pointing out this morning, after you consider taxes on those recent pay bumps, it means that you are still falling behind with inflation now at 2.5%. 
In other words, most folks in the middle class and the working class still having a tough go of it. So headlines aside that were glowing yesterday, Miss Katie and everybody else, I still hear you, even if economists do not. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. I'll hold off on a listener question today and instead just wish us all well as we start our weekends. But as ever, I will see you on Monday, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day.